If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where our cases involve capital acquisitions instead of capital punishment. I'm Caleb Newquist. And I'm Greg Kite. Before we get into today's episode, Greg, uh, I would like to read a listener email, if I may. Sounds great. Great. Uh, This message comes from Jim Park, and Jim says, I'm a law professor at UCLA Law School where I teach securities regulation. I was delighted to come across your podcast and am especially looking forward to catching up on the episodes on Miniscribe, the salad oil scandal, and the Four Seasons Fraud. About a year ago, I published a book on the history of securities fraud and its regulation that may be of interest to you and the listeners of your podcast. It was definitely of interest to us, Greg, so much so that he is our guest on today's show. Yeah. And now just to set our listeners expectations correctly, hey, listener, don't start thinking that you can just butter us up with a sweet email and you'll automatically get to be on the show. But also, we still do love to get butted up with sweet emails, so please do consider to continue to send those to the show uh, at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. Keep them coming. We love to, we love to read them. Our low self-esteem kind of needs that. Yeah, yeah. Flattery will get you everywhere. Now, that being said, we would love for uh, anyone who has been convicted of a fraud and been sent to jail for that said fraud... If that's you, then uh, send us a shitty email. And if your case is interesting and um, and 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 we don't feel uh, that our lives are in danger, then then we'll consider you know putting you on the show. Yeah, that's a that's a disguised invitation to Jeff Skilling to to reach <laughs> out to us. Yeah, I know we would. I would totally talk to Jeff Skilling. I was, I, I'll reach yeah. out to him. Um, yeah. But hey, another thing, Caleb, before we get into today's interview, we do need to lay just a little bit of groundwork because we want to make sure that the show is accessible to everybody. Um, So first off, uh, we do during the interview, we do throw around the acronym GAP uh, as if everyone knows what GAP is. And that's just for the uninitiated. That's (laughs) G-A-A-P. Exactly. Not not the not the, you know, uh, the mid range, mid range clothing store where you mean the place where I buy my jeans always. Yeah. Yes. Not and that all one. my, all my t-shirts. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. uh, so yeah, we throw it around like everyone should know what it is. And that's probably because we feel like everyone should know what it is. Gap stands for generally accepted accounting principles. And basically if you're a publicly traded company in the United States, you have to prepare your financial statements in conformity with the generally accepted accounting principles gap of the United States of America. So there's that. Well, well, well said, Greg. Thank you. Also, if, if you are new to the show, uh, we do mention a couple of cases that we've covered in previous episodes. Those are uh, Four Seasons Nursing Homes of America and Miniscribe. Uh, Four Seasons was episode 10 and Miniscribe was episode 21. And With all that being said, we are so happy to have the following conversation with Jim Park, who's a law professor at UCLA, and he's the author of the book, The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. 
So Jim, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I was so, like I said, uh, before we got on the mics, uh, I was so pleasantly surprised to get your email. And, uh, so it's, it's great that you're here. We like to start off these interviews, uh, with just getting people's stories. So, you know, start, start way back. Like did were your parents securities attorneys? Like (laughs) give us, give us the, give us the Jim Park story. Yeah. I mean, it's they had nothing to do with securities. I don't know if they even invested in in the market. And I, I myself never really uh, got into investing until maybe after college or even after law school. And, you know, I grew up in Ohio. I'm a mid- Midwesterner and, um, you know, sort of a science guy initially. Um, and I was on the debate team, debate team growing up. And that got me interested in, in law. And um, I uh, studied uh, economics um, in uh, college, had this great, great professor, uh, James Brock, who uh, taught antitrust. And he had this great class where we would just read these uh, books um, on big business and uh, uh, companies like IBM and, and just the sort of the stories of uh, businesses that had grown too big and they ended up not doing so well. And 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 just the the approach of that class, I think, really uh, got me interested in 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 just sort of the um, the narratives, just sort of the the background, the history of of business and economics. And you know, he uh, recommended some great books to me that I still look at today on corporations. Um, one is the Modern Corporation by um, Burley and Means, which is this classic story about how. There's a separation between ownership and control in the modern corporation that is kind of the basis for a lot of uh, corporate law debates today. He uh, gave me a book uh, called um, by Joseph Schumpeter on uh, sort of this idea of creative destruction in, in corporations. And so he got me interested in uh, studying big, big businesses and corporations. So I went off to, to law school and uh, took a great uh, business associations class, learned about corporations there, um, had an internship at the Securities and Exchange Commission, oh, and that got me interested cool. in corporate law. You know, then, um, you know, I, I started uh, working in New York City in 2000. And so I did a couple of federal clerkships. I was out of the city on 9-11 between clerkships. Mm. Uh, I worked wow. in the federal courthouses, which were five, 10 minute walk from there. I was at the World Trade Center, you know, just a week or so before the attacks, uh, but I was out of town that day. And, you know, that second year I was in, you know, very close by the ruins and just a sort yeah. of a formative ex- experience. Um, yeah. And then I think I'd go on, I work at a law firm for a couple of years. You know, that's around the time of, you know, Enron files for bankruptcy, mm-hmm. I think, in the fall of 2001. Um, and yep. then WorldCom's about six months later, Sarbanes-Oxy in 2002. Then I, I'm entering practice around that time. There are a lot of these securities frauds that are out there. We're defending um, a lot of SEC investigations, private lawsuits. Did that for a couple of years. And I, I switched sides. And I, I went to uh, the New York Attorney General's office. Uh, who the, the AG was Elliot Spitzer um, at the time, who was known as the sheriff of Wall Street. And I worked in the Investor Protection Bureau there. Um, I was fairly junior at the time, and a lot of the biggest cases had been brought. But there's a steady stream of really interesting uh, work going on that I 
that I was a part of, and I, I got to work on some accounting fraud investigations um, against big companies, and so I got a sense of how that worked. So, you know, after that, um, I was there for a couple years and um, thought, you know, why not go into teaching? That's something I'd always thought about. I taught at Brooklyn Law School for about six years, and then uh, got the opportunity to, to come out uh, west to UCLA, um, where I've been for about the last 10 years. Um, and so given my background, it was, it was natural for me to study securities fraud. And so yeah. um, over the years, I've written a lot of articles on um, on, on private litigation, on uh, SEC enforcement, and that's all culminated in uh, this book, which is a, a history of securities fraud and securities fraud regulation. Right. And before we get to the book, just a couple of questions. Well, first off, just to point out, uh, it's it, debate team. That seems like that's that's a, a clear path towards a, towards a profession in, in the legal area. Is that have you found a lot of your colleagues are like, yeah, debate team kind of that's what got me started, too. There are there are a lot of them and it's just a great activity. Um, it really opened a lot of doors for me because it's, you know, my my parents were not lawyers. They didn't. um really have any knowledge of this. And so this is kind of the way I, I got to understand how to, you know, construct an argument and speak in public. And, you know, you see a lot of, I see a lot of uh, ex-debaters out in the legal world and um, in legal academia as well. Yeah, the good ones. I I was I, I did debate when I was in middle school. Not a, not a fan, and so hence not <laughs> a, a, a legal profession was not in my future. Um. So so Jim, tell us more. I I had no idea that a SEC internship was in your past. Can you tell us more? Like, what was that like doing an internship at the yeah. SEC? Were you like? Was... I, please tell me you were kicking in doors and hauling off uh, <laughs> bankers' boxes full of receipts. It was a little less exciting than that. I, I think, um, actually, I, I misspoke a little bit. I think the internship was before law school. Now that I think about it, it was between, mm. between college and, and law school. And, and it was really interesting because I, I worked in this office called the Office of the Inspector General. And I don't know if you've heard of the ins Inspector General. Um, mm. I think every agency in Washington has an Inspector General who's supposed yes. to kind of audit the agency, make sure it's doing yeah. a good job. And so the project um, the inspector general was working on is he was doing an audit of the eth ethics of uh, SEC lawyers. And so I got to go with him. I was kind of the note taker. Um, I traveled all around uh, visiting the different regional offices and listening to uh, SEC lawyers talk about their jobs and why they why they did what they did and, and ethics more generally. And and that got me interested in public service because, you know, I learned that there are all these folks here who could be making a lot of money at a law firm and they're making a government salary um, in order to uh, do this sort of work. And that, that sort of blew my mind, you know, just sort of that that sort of that idea. Um, and and also, you know, that they're doing more, you know, more interesting work in some ways than maybe at a, at a law firm in some cases. And and they also have the option to kind of go back and, and, and go back and work at a law firm later on after they've sort of built up a name for themselves. And that got me interested in in working in government. Right. So, and and then another question. So that you said you spent a couple of years at a law firm before you got into into teaching uh, at at various law schools. What? And I assume just based on what you said, just to make sure I'm clear on this. So, did that law firm did that specialize in? Because you said you de you defended a couple SEC in, uh, investigations. So, was that the specialty? Was exactly that defending? 
uh, you, like companies would come to you say, "Hey, the SEC is coming after us. Help us." Is that what what you did? It, it, exactly. That's part of what I did, and it's a very big practice in law firms now, where mm-hmm. you know, doing white collar investigations and and uh, defenses of SEC investigations, uh, cases by federal prosecutors, and there's a lot of this stuff also that it never becomes public. You never know sometimes that an investigation is happening. Oh, but yeah, lawyers yeah. may be working on it. And so it just, you know, sometimes the, you know, the, you know, oftentimes a corporation, um, you know, calls the attorneys to kind of work out sort of what happened within the company. Like they, they sometimes want to identify who did uh, the bad things. And, um, and so it is a huge, huge practice area for, uh, oh. for attorneys. And um, so I worked, I did that kind of work, also did some litigation in courts where you're actually being sued. Um, and uh, they also did some corporate litigation. So I did some work in uh, Delaware, which is sort of the the leading place for uh, corporate lawsuits yeah. and, and and leading right. uh, place where public companies incorporate. So okay, so that's interesting. When you said a lot of so so, let me see if I'm getting this picture right. You're saying that a lot of times the SEC will come to a company and say you're in trouble, and the company will be like, "What the hell did we do?" And they'll come to their attorney and go, "We don't even know what the hell we did." So it's almost like you have to do like almost like for because we know about forensic accounting. I assume you had to do that to go backwards to go. Oh, here's what they're talking about. Is that is that it? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, a lot of. A lot of the folks who are, um, you know, working in this area, they may have been former SEC uh, employees. They may have been federal prosecutors. So they they know how to investigate a company, and they they sort of uh, use those skills to help the corporation know what happened within the company. Um, and yeah. so they will talk to people, interview people, uh, read a lot of documents uh, sometimes before a case is even filed. And so then the corporation can decide what it wants to do you know it may decide hey let's let's just settle this um or you know let's fire these individuals and cooperate with the sec um or sometimes um the corporation and its attorneys will try to persuade the sec or the prosecutors not to even bring a case and some of the most successful results are ones where you know there there was an investigation and um, or by the SEC, and you persuade them not to go forward, and no one, no one ever hears about the case. Right, and that's that's probably the most valuable thing that could, like the the most the most positive outcome that could happen for the company that's being involved is if you're good enough to just tell the SEC you need to just there's other there's other things you need to be focusing your time on. Is <laughs> yeah, that right? Yeah. That is that is that is the best best result, and it, it happens. Cool. Yeah. Wild. Hey folks, Caleb Newquist here, co-host of Oh My Fraud. 2023 is coming to a close fast. And if you're an advertiser or marketer who wants to capitalize on the thousands of accountants who will be listening to this podcast to get their continuing professional education credits, why not advertise on Oh My Fraud? Use our self-service ad platform to browse our remaining inventory and book the slots that fit your marketing budget. From there, it will only be a matter of time before you hear us telling our listeners your company's story. Head over to ohmyfraud.com slash sponsor to get your campaign started. That's ohmyfraud.com slash sponsor. Okay, so then, uh, so so now, 
getting back to your book, y- your book is called The Valuation Treadmill. Um, it's all about securities fraud. Um, and I know throughout the book, you'll you'll go back to the concept of yeah. the valuation treadmill. Would you just explain to sure. us and to our listeners what it is that you mean by the valuation treadmill? Yeah, yeah I got the phrase in part from this a book on valuation by McKinsey that I would highly recommend to anyone interested in learning about valuation and finance. And, you know, their, their description is that if you're a public corporation these days, that in order to, to maintain your valuation, to keep your stock price just at the same level, um, it's sort of like running on a treadmill where you have to continually be moving forward just to stay in the same place. Um, because as a corporation, what you're trying to do is you're trying to convince investors that your future performance is continuing. That, as you know, the, the value of a, of a stock is going to depend upon um, the market's assessment of the present value of the company's future earnings. Um, and so it's important to uh, persuade investors that that trajectory that they have based their valuation on is continuing. And so that requires... Um, Doing things like consistently meeting your projections of, of uh, quarterly earnings and, and revenue, um, also uh, maintaining fairly ambitious uh, projections of revenue and, and growth. And the thing that distinguishes a public company from a private company, in my view, is you're, you're subject to this uh, short-term pressure, as, as many of you know, um, where you have to deliver market results consistently, or there could be a very rapid and brutal reassessment of your valuation and your stock price can uh, plummet. And I, I thought the idea of the treadmill was kind of a nice uh, sort of analogy that, you know, you you just have to keep moving forward just to stay in the same place. And, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a quote from the book about... Um, you know, one of the frauds involved equity funding, which which is about 10 minutes from where I am in the 1970s. They they basically make up insurance policies to boost their revenue. And, and at one point, the staff, the managers, they they tell the CEO, you have to stop. We're going to go, gonna go to jail if, if they discover this. And his answer is, I can't report flat earnings. I can't report mm-hmm. flat earnings uh, or, or there's going to be an assess or a reassessment. And 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 part of the point of the book is those pressures, you start seeing them kind of in the late 60s and 70s, and, and they kind of build upon, build, build upon uh, each, it sort of builds over time um, to the point where you need a law like Sarbanes-Oxley to kind of counteract that pressure. That's the idea of the valuation treadmill. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I love it. And I've seen enough, I've seen enough videos on TikTok of people who stop running on a treadmill and just get tossed <laughs> against the back wall that I, I think yeah. that, that per, I'm on board with the, with the analogy. So yeah. Awesome. So, so Jim, then, then the next question, and this, this relates very closely to what you just explained is, uh, is it has to be with like the, the motivation you, you as accountants, we are we're beat over the head with the fraud triangle. I'm sure you know the fraud triangle. There's yeah. got to be opportunity, uh, pressure, and some kind of way to justify your fraud to yourself. Um, and so, with the pressure, what I'm what I'm wondering is, it, it, just if you would tell me if I got it right, how the pressure comes for securities fraud, um, because and and the, I see it coming from two ways. 
from where I stand. First off, the it's the people in the C-suite that, that are at least, you know, the people that we look at as committing these frauds. And they for sure have to have lots of stock in the company or stock options in the company for themselves. So if they do commit a securities fraud to make to maintain or to increase the stock price, they're going to directly benefit from that because of their stocks or their stocks options. The second pressure is that if if and I guess even like what you said, if the stock price either drops or if it or even if it just stays the same, that's going to start pissing off your shareholders and shareholders yeah. can vote out people who are management for a company. And that so that's what I see as being the motivation for this. Is there anything I'm is I guess two questions. Is that right? And is there anything I'm missing? That That's absolutely right. And um, the book tries to emphasize, I think, the second explanation, because the, the first explanation is one that's been sort of written about a lot, just the personal incentive of executives to sell their stock. And, and I think that's true in many cases, but not all cases that, you know, I, I think the thing that makes it complicated is that sometimes you have these securities frauds and the managers, they, they're not bailing out of the stock. And um, they are trying to kind of make things work for what they believe is the good of the company, the good of the shareholders. Um, and I think that's what is a trickier type of uh, securities fraud um, than just sort of this idea that it's, it's just bad people who are trying to enrich themselves. And, you know, the, it links in very nicely with sort of this idea of shareholder wealth maximization, which is being increasingly questioned in modern right. times. And, and part of the rise of the problem of securities fraud, I argue, is this idea of shareholder wealth maximization, which kind of gains more traction in the late 60s, 1970s or so. Before that, there's a sense like corporate managers, you're, you know, you're like um, kind of a pillar of the community, a captain of industry that is taking care of this large organization that has a huge impact on society. And, and part of that is enabled by the prosperity after World War II, where U.S. companies are just thriving because they have no, you know, competitors. The rest of the world is recovering from World War II, and um, they are just—they don't need to commit securities fraud because they are, you know, they're raking in money basically, and yeah, they have yeah, no competition. Right. It's when you kind of get the more foreign competition and and technology is disruptive that you know you begin thinking about well, what about the shareholders? Are you, these la these managers are lazy and. And, and that kind of leads to this, this shift in, in various respects. And part of that shift involves um, changes in the way we value companies, where we're looking much more at the projections. And that really becomes more prominent like in the late 60s and 1970s or so, where we're, we're saying we, we, we don't entirely trust you managers. We want to see, are you meeting these benchmarks? And you know by the 80s and 90s, it's really kind of the, the driving force of, of stock markets where it's quarterly projections. And you read the Wall yeah. Street Journal today, every three months, every story is about did this company meet its, uh, its projections? And that's a type of shareholder wealth uh, maximization. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing now is you, you, you may be aware is that we're, we're seeing more questioning of, of, of the focus on shareholders and uh, concern about stakeholders. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that affects the way we regulate public companies. Um, so, but it, it is exactly right that I, I think it is sort of this broad idea of shareholder wealth maximization and showing that you're maximizing shareholder wealth by by meeting 
uh, projections. Right. So, so almost just to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, it sounds like sure the whole I've got stocks and if the stock price increases, then I become more wealthy. That's, that's his thing. But what you're saying is there's this, this weirder, more nebulous, harder to just say you're a bad guy kind of thing where really what the motivation for some of these guys is, is they're, they want to do, they just basically want to do a good job, which means we need to see that stock price go up, which means we need to hit our projections. And those, the projections, are those internal projections? Are those the ones that like, uh, like analysts, external analysts say, hey, we think you need to meet this to hit this. Where, where do those projections come from, inside or outside the companies? It's mainly the external projections. Um, okay, but that's what I the thought. The interesting thing, interesting part of the, the, the story is how, how did we begin relying on external projections? And, and part of yeah. the reason is that internal projections start getting better at some point in the 50s and 60s. And, and part of this is that we're beginning to see management more as a science and people are going to business school. They're being trained to kind of uh, manage their large organizations. And that's internal projections, like setting good internal projections. Um, mm -hmm. Part of it's also technology of computers. They can keep track of things. And so, so what happens in some, sometime in the 1950s and 1960s, um, markets start getting more interested in those internal projections. And that's why we begin thinking, they begin thinking external projections are more reliable because these analysts are often getting information from the managers about their internal projections, right? Sometimes okay. it's kind of through uh, side conversations. Sometimes the companies will release their own projections, and, and the reason we begin to try, I mean, think about it. It's kind of crazy to think you can project some, a company's future performance out in, you know, it just seems like kind of an odd thing, but that's, that's sort of what managers are paid to do is to, to yeah. manage the business and to have reliable projections. So what happens gradually over the sixties and seventies is that, um, this becomes sort of the way we judge managers, right? Mm -hmm. And, and if you're missing your projections, that, that that tells me not only the company is the company sort of faltering, but but the managers are not doing a good job because they they didn't that their the projections were unrealistic, and so the irony of this is that you know projections become better because managers are better, but then this mm -hmm. becomes kind of the way we grade them. We grade them in the 60s, 70s, and and even today uh, based on their ability to sort of uh, accurately predict and meet these uh, these these projections. Gotcha. So the I I pulled a quote from the book that I think kind of summarizes this pretty well, and it's and you said you wrote uh, public company securities fraud is not solely caused by corrupt managers acting to enrich themselves, but is often committed by generally ethical corporate managers who issue an, a misleading portrayal of the corporation as they pursue corporate goals. So I guess where where my brain immediately goes to is is what what jumps out at me is the misleading portrayal of a corporation. So it, if you if you take that as just maybe someone's opinion, right? As a manager's opinion, and it, is it possible for that to be to be fraudulent? Like how do we distinguish between an overconfident CEO or a CFO who's given a rosy outlook between someone who's committing fraud. Is that, is that possible? Yeah. I think that's what makes it really tricky, right? 
it makes it very tricky and and that's why the law in this area is very difficult to explain to um and out just sort of somebody who's not a lawyer and even internally among lawyers themselves there's a lot of disagreement about uh, whether somebody's committed securities fraud because it depends upon uh to some extent fraudulent intent um there's a a rule yeah. called Rule 10b-5, which you may be familiar with. Um, this mm -hmm. is kind of our Swiss Army knife of uh, securities fraud enforcement that is brought with respect to a lot of different types of fraud. And it just it doesn't define fraud very precisely. And it's done on a very case-by-case -case basis. Um, now, opinions, generally, to the extent that they are pure opinions, the law tries to say that a pure opinion is not going to be enough to uh, trigger liability under Rule 10b-5 or other similar uh, statutes. Um, what gets you in trouble is if you are misstating facts, factual mm. information. Um, now, the line, though, between fact and opinion can be very blurry. Um, and um, that's the what, what, what we look for as lawyers is can mm. we say this is a misstatement about a fact that you knew was incorrect as opposed to your general opinion about what's going on. Now, projections more broadly are a form of opinion, right? If I say that, you know, I think we're going to earn this much in a year or two, we generally think of that as kind of being someone's opinion. It's not a fact because it's a prediction about um, the future, but and, mm -hmm. and there are these what are called safe harbors that have been passed. In, in 1995, there's a law called the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act um, that was passed um, after uh, Silicon Valley gets really upset about being sued all the time whenever their predictions of great success are not met. Um, okay. And so they lobby Congress to pass this law to provide some pr protection for uh, forward-looking statements and projections. And, and, and it's, it's very difficult to establish liability for opinions or projections. And so what the attorneys, um, the plaintiff's attorneys in SEC often do is they'll try to find facts, though, that are incorrect relating to the projection as opposed to saying the projection itself is false. But every once in a while, though, you know, the safe harbor says that if I know the projection is incorrect, that that can actually lead to liability, which which sometimes happens from time to time. And I was, you know, thinking about your episode on Four Seasons Nursing Homes, right? Part mm -hmm. of yep. I think the uh, allegation there was that they they just knew these projections were completely unreliable. You know, they they were just made up of nothing. They were just had no basis for them. And and so sometimes right, right. you can get liability for uh, projections, but you usually need to link it into some factual information in order to have a good. Claim. And, and the classic example in the accounting statement is that, you know, you claim to follow gap and you're not following gap. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that that's something that is is kind of you think of that as as, as not an opinion, but it's it, it's sort of a, a, a sort of a statement that, um, you know, you're either objectively following gap or or not. Although I know there's a lot of gray areas, but if yeah, I'm, yeah. you know, egregiously violating gap, then that sure. is, you know, something that's a misrepresentation. I'm glad you mentioned the. Um... The Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, because that that caught my eye too, and that was in response uh, to a Supreme Court decision that kind of like I think uh, what did you say here? You said um, it, it it kind of it, it increased the duty that companies had to to issue truthful disclosures, and then you yeah. know in in a v relatively short order, this new law came out during the the mid '90s, and I thought to myself, oh. 
that's corporate lobbyists earning their keep right there. Like that seems to be, um, you know, how the sausage gets made, how the litigate, or excuse me, how the legislative sausage gets made in that case. Yeah. 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 The, the Supreme Court decision is called Basic versus Levinson. And it basically it made it easier for investors to bring a class action. And, and yeah. if I can bring a class action against a company, then my cl- I have a lot of clout because I can allege, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of damages instead of, you know, five or ten thousand dollars individually. Right. Um, and so then you have this, you know, rise in these these cases. And there's a story of the Apple case where they get hit with a hundred million dollar verdict in a trial um, arising out of their um, their failed Lisa computer and the Twiggy disk drive there. And, and so, you know, they're part of it, just Silicon Valley lobbying. Um, and it's a very powerful uh, constituency. Um, and, you know, more recently, about a decade ago, there's a, a law called the Jobs Act that was passed that tries to make it easier to do an IPO. And you can link that pretty directly to um, uh, very uh, Silicon Valley groups. Um, and that, that is how the sausage is, is made. And, and you know, as, as, a, as a country, entrepreneur, we like entrepreneurship. And, yep. you know, politicians like getting uh, donations from um, the, the technology industry. So that, that, that sort of can get legislation passed. So uh, another question that I have is who, it, in, from your experience, who, who's actually committing, who's committing the fraud? Is it, is it the guys in the C-suite? Uh, because I know that they're the ones who are held responsible for it, but I also doubt that a lot of CEOs have the finance, like the accounting and financial expertise yeah. to actually yeah. do whatever happened to make the, yeah, and, and especially, I mean, the, the biggest thing that comes to mind is, is Enron because I've, I've watched all the documentaries. I read, I read the what 400 page book, the smartest guys in the room. I still, if somebody said what happened at Enron, I'm like, I, I, I don't, I think I understood it once and now I don't again. Um, so is it is it the guy is it the CEO the CFO who are committing the fraud or is it more that they just get everybody in a room and they're like hey hey everybody sit down and shut up we need to we need to hit these numbers I don't care how you do it just do it and then that's uh, and and then the fraud still comes back on them because they're the ones who were pushing it even though the other people did the actual you know Rube Goldberg machine to make the fraud happen. So really, it's a really great question. And, you know, to really uh, trigger sort of major uh, SEC interest um, or even federal criminal charges, uh, high level decision makers have to be involved to some extent, right? If it's just lower level people doing bad things and nobody knows about it, then it's much harder to uh, say it's security. It may just be a fraud or kind of maybe it's, um, you know, something else. Um, but, you know, with and it differs, I think you get both situations and and sort of the example you give of, you know, somebody not knowing the details might be Bernie Ebers at WorldCom, where he's not an accountant and um, he is basically refusing to make adjustments to very ambitious, you know, projections uh, to the market. And he kind of just implies to the CFO, you know, just do something to, you know, to, to get this done. Right. And that's right. what he yeah, testifies yeah. at. At trial, he doesn't know really the details of GAP, and that's true for most um, 
high level, especially the CEO, is they're not experts in 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 accounting. Um, and and so the the challenge in these cases for the regulators, you have to link it to a broader motivation as to why upper level management wanted this to get done and the things they knew about it. Um, and so in the Enron criminal case against Jeff Skilling, um, one of the things they they pointed out is they they pointed at very particular small transactions in the criminal trial, even though this is you know a, a multi billion dollar problem yeah. in terms of accounting and and yeah. so forth. But they're they're pointing out transactions that are you know ten, fifteen, twenty million dollars. Um, and one of them uh, that um, that that comes to mind is is this transaction with Nigerian barges. You may recall mm -hmm. that they're selling these to an SPE. And it's maybe 15, 20 million dollars. And, and so why, why are they doing this? Well, um, what, what the prosecutors say and the appellate court agrees with is that they, they're doing it to meet a target, a projection, um, even though it's a small uh, transaction. And um, there's also testimony that skilling is personally involved in this particular transaction. And okay. the testimony uh, that Andy Fasto gives is that uh, the CFO is that skilling uh, basically said that the SP, SPE would not lose money on the transaction. Um, and so you could argue that it's not a true sale. It's not a sale because right. we've, Enron has kept the risk of loss on this. And so it, it's that type of information that you need to sort of bring a, a criminal case. Um, and, you know, you can debate as to whether or not that's sufficient for criminal intent. I think there's probably room for disagreement um, on it. But this, yeah. this these are the kind of transactions that um, persuaded the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to affirm to affirm these uh, various convictions, and so sometimes you do have the executives; they're kind of directly involved in in some of this. But that that's probably the rarer case, I, I think. And yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, and and so, but but most of the time, it's just like they need it to get done. They need to tell this story to the market, and they basically kind of you know make sure it's done they're kind of reckless and and that that's often usually that's mostly just kind of civil liability that gets you in trouble with the SEC as opposed to criminal liability but sometimes it can be criminal right so so tell me so tell me if this is right or wrong cuz i because like the, the whole thing of, hey, like, like you were saying, Bernie Ebers at WorldCom, he says, hey, here's these projections. I don't care what you do. You just got to hit the numbers. In, in the legal process, is that similar to when like when someone like when a lady hires a hitman to murder her husband, yeah. she didn't pull the trigger, but she went to the guy and said, hey, murder my husband. So she's guilty of murder. Is it is it similar to that kind of thing? It, it, it's similar. It's it's sort of um, a type of criminal recklessness or willful blindness about kind of the implications of your actions, and it's you know it it is it is a similar concept. I think that um, that we've seen in some of these cases. Okay. Cool. Hey, Greg. Uh, yeah. Should we get into a case or two? I mean, I don't. Absolutely. I mean, okay. Yeah. So the one. Um, so for people who haven't checked out the book yet uh check out the book uh but there is there it is a history of securities fraud as i think we said up front and there are cases you start with xerox because if correct me if i'm wrong but you said xerox is kind of like the blueprint for the all future securities frauds to come and that's why you kind of open with that and i was somewhat familiar with the 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 xerox story and it's it's relatively straightforward the one that i wasn't familiar with was penn central and yeah. I don't know if Greg, if you knew that particular story, and I don't know Did how not. many of our listeners, uh, but it's an older it's it's an older fraud. It goes back to the '60s, 
And Penn Central was kind of, it was, it was a conglomerate, it was a massive conglomerate of its day. And, um, but it, it, it started with the merger of two, uh, two big railroads, the Pennsylvania Railroad, I believe in the, in the New York Railroad. Again, keep me honest here. But that, that was an interesting case to me because the way you kind of lay it out is like you had these uh, uh, historically very successful businesses, railroad businesses, yeah. and they started expanding. They get bigger and bigger and bigger and they start, and then they start growing, instead of just growing organically, they start growing through acquisition. And then all of a sudden they just have this behemoth conglomerate that isn't really a railroad company anymore. It's it's a it's a railroad company, but it's also a real estate company, and it's also they've got Six Flags, which I didn't even know Six Flags was around in the '60s, but apparently it was. Yeah. But the right. thing is, is like it, it kind of reminded me of one of your later examples in the book, which is General Electric, which we may or may not talk about. Yeah. But you just yeah. have this massive business that. And again, this is coming out of the age of managerialism, right? Where you've got these smart guys, and they were at that time probably literally all guys. You had these smart guys at the top that were seen as uh, smart and knew how to run a business, a big business, and you just just knew that they were going to make it grow somehow. And Penn Central essentially disproved all that because the business got to such such a size and scale that it become it became unmanageable is that is that more or less right and i'm just curious uh, what are some key things out of that story that you think uh people should know about because i i think it's kind of an under uh, it, it's a lesser known story i would i would guess yeah among um, i think among our generation definitely lesser known or known if i you know when you talk to older attorneys though they they know uh penn yep. central because it was a, a, a sort of an iconic event um that kind of really shattered uh, faith in manager managerialism. And, and so how could such a large corporation um, run by, you know, strong managers uh, go under? It led to questions about where was the board of directors? You know, how mm-hmm. did corporate governance work? It was a shock. It was a shock to uh, the system. And it was accompanied by some of these other you know, Four Seasons Nursing Homes was actually around this time a smaller company, yep. but one that had committed accounting fraud, um, equity funding, which I talked about earlier, was around this time. And that leads to kind of a crisis in the accounting uh, world about, you know, where were the where were the auditors? That's the other uh, question that that comes yeah. up there. Um, <laughs> where That's a question we ask all that. the time. I mean, we're is, still asking. It, 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 it is getting better. I, but, but I think, well, it's it is it, it is. Um, uh, sort of an everlasting uh, question, but it really kind of, I think, begins um, at least being systematically asked in the 70s after these crises. And, you know, the, um, you know, the merger in some ways was very interesting because, you know, it was criticized um, when it was being considered mm-hmm. because they said this is going to create this big monopoly to, you know, it's going to dominate the marketplace. Um, but it's really kind of more of a sign of weakness because you think about, by the 1960s, you have the interstate highway that's been built, yep. air travel is cheaper. This is kind of a declining operating business. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of, in a sense, a way of trying to stave that off by combining these two businesses and, and getting operating efficiencies. And so they're trying to, to, to prove to the market that they can do this. They can kind of turn around this um, this this business. And, and so part of one of the things that's notable about Penn Central, not only the size, is that you know the strategy of management is let's let's try to maximize shareholder wealth. Let's try to really 
do everything we can to create the impression we're generating uh, revenue. Um, and, you know, this is also kind of evidence of this new ethos in the 1970s of shareholder wealth uh, maximization um, as a strategy. And, you know, the, their strategy is they sell a bunch of assets. As you said, they're this conglomerate now, and they're selling these assets they bought in in better times. And, and some of that is completely fine as a way of managing earnings, right? You know, GE, as you may know, during the 1990s, it, it would sell these, you know, to, to meet their projections, they would, you know, they sell an asset to someone and, and just kind of make it right over the line. And everyone kind of knew this and said that, you know, that that's actually good management because you're, you're delivering smooth earnings. Um, and Penn Central, so th that, that part was not fraudulent. There were those some transactions that were, problematic and, and that they were not quite really sales because, you know, the Six Flags example, for example, where they're, they're selling the Six Flag amusement park to um, a partnership and they keep the risk of loss. They have this side yep. agreement to keep the risk of loss. And that's that very similar to what we just said about Enron. And then this is kind of, you know, the tactic that gets used over time. And, you know, there's this fascinating exchange where um, the auditors, they don't defend the substance of the transaction. They say it's not material. And that, that's another big concept that is um, worth uh, emphasizing. I'm sure auditors talk about materiality a lot. Lawyers talk about it, but maybe thinking about different things. And so this, this um, they, they say it's not material because it's like it's raising, you know, $30 million. It's a billion dollar company. Um, and uh, this accounting professor, Abe Brilloff, um, who wrote a, a number of great books in the 70s um, about public company accounting, he taught at Baruch. He says, well, the point is that the reason it's material is that, you know, without this, you would have reported a loss yep. in a period where you, you predicted a favorable showing. Um, and so you were kind of meeting this projection. Um, and so that was something that the SEC cited and emphasized in, in its report. So you're beginning to see some of these little accounting tactics that are emerging around the time of Penn Central. And, and you're right, it's very you know, similar to the sad story of GE, where you have this, you know, the, the, this sort of pattern. One of the patterns of securities fraud is that this, this company that was once great, it's declining. It's mm -hmm. trying to hide that from investors. And that's yeah. one of the stories we often see in, in securities fraud. Right. I'm 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 in my 50s now so I'm declining and I'm trying to hide that from ev from everyone so I personally understand where that comes from. Um, you're doing it gracefully though, Greg. Th thanks. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but I appreciate the uh, the pat on the back. Um so but Jim, this is uh something that you mentioned with regard to Penn Central uh is something that I actually wanted to ask you about uh chapter 7 you began that chapter with a quote that said 78% of the surveyed executives yeah. would give up economic value in exchange for smooth earnings. And, and the reason that came up is you said Penn Central, what they, like, you, you kind of commended their management that they were actually do, at one point, they were doing things to actually have some smooth earnings. But can you unpack that quote for me? Even like, what the hell does that, that mean? Like, what, what do we yeah. mean economic value for, like, are we saying, I'd rather have a lower share price as long as I had smooth earnings over a consistent period of time? What, what did that quote mean? Cause I, it kind of, it kind of, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't completely grasp it. Yeah. No, it's, it's a famous uh, study that's cited widely in the uh, finance literature and among law professors. And it's a bit controversial, right? There's, there's um, some questions about, um, 
sort of the the methodology and and how many people they asked but the general idea is that they are doing things that are inefficient in order to uh, create smooth earnings they are you know one of the sort of classic example of this is that I'm you know I'm cutting R and D in order to um, reduce my costs to uh, deliver stronger earnings and that would re reduce economic value because I'm less likely to discover that next groundbreaking drug and um, or, or product um, but I'm, I'm willing to do this in order to meet the projection in order to meet market expectations and, and the thing that's troubling about that is corporations in a sense are playing this game where they are just creating the appearance of doing well um, while making decisions that actually are reducing their value over the long run, um, and I gotcha. think that's you know that that's that's the um, uh, the implication of that that study, and it's a you know it some some academics believe that that is a a big problem in the U.S. Um, others think it's 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 overblown. So there is some controversy about that point, but that's 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 also a motivation for um for uh what might be questionable manipulative activities what's your what's your opinion do you feel like that's a that there actually are uh managers of companies who are who are very much over you know they're they're flushing great ideas and and things that could end up becoming a big deal for the company just so that every quarter they can show just this little tick that the that the market expects i think it depends on the context i don't think that the the problem is a big problem for all companies, and okay. you know I think the sure. the biggest um, sort of uh, sort of place where it may be an issue is you have a company that is sort of trying to establish itself and it's trying to show and prove itself. Um, it's not okay. proven to investors, and so it feels like it has to kind of do all these things to create a certain trajectory that kind of makes investors excited. Um, I think it's probably less of a problem for the Googles and Microsofts of the world because they are so dominant that um, I think that they have a bit more leeway in order to, you know, they, they, they have such strong businesses that, hey, we, you know, we might miss kind of, we might make a mistake here and there, but investors trust us and, and we're, we're, we're not going to really kind of make really bad decisions because of that sort of pressure um, and, you know, so I think it it, it it kind of depends on the context. I think you know the story of the the company that's just trying to establish itself, prove itself. That's where I think you may see uh, these sorts of problems of of short termism that that could uh, be uh, be an issue. And and also the declining company, right? If you have these companies that yeah. they look great on the surface, but they're declining, um, that's where I think you can get this sort of uh, value reducing activity. And I hope it's a small percentage of public companies, but it could be, it could be fairly large. Yeah. You well. mentioned, I think it's in the introduction to the book that you mentioned Under Armour, which I think is the perfect example yeah. of the kind of the, the company on the rise, right? Cause you had at that time, you know, you know, Nike is like the biggest flashiest name in town, right? And Under Armour is kind of this emerging brand and they have and they have great products. People yeah. love their products and they're buying it and they're just they're kind of on fire. But I don't remember the the exact details, but they had quarter after quarter after quarter where they're hitting earnings. But it, it eventually the the streak ended and quite spectacularly. Yeah. And the company is fine. I think what's also interesting is yeah. a lot of times these companies that are under this pressure, they are trying to meet these expectations because again, they're on the rise. 
And if they just like sat back and said, Hey guys, if we miss one quarter, we can take the hit for a week or two. The, the, the stock price can probably take the hit for a week or two. Ultimately we have strong, we have, we, we have strong unit economics or whatever it is about our business. We feel confident in our business. We can take the hit two or three quarters. Nobody's going to care and everything's going to be fine. And as far as I know, Under Armour's still a very fine business, very successful business. And yeah, they, they, they decided to, you know, play the system game, game their earnings and, and they paid the price, but ultimately they came out the other side. And so I wonder, so that just brings something up for me. If you do have a strong business, like, especially a business that's kind of uh, on the rise, it's emerging. If, if they're in kind of this growth mode, if they can afford like a hundred million dollar fine from the SEC, or maybe they can even weather some, you know, uh, uh, private litigation, civil lit- litigation. I mean, do, do you think there's like a cost benefit going on behind the scenes where somebody's like, well, we can be super aggressive and we might have some litigation. We might have some fines and stuff to handle with, but you know, it's, it's worth us hitting our numbers to keep hitting our numbers quarter after quarter. I mean, is that kind of the calculus that has to go on behind the scenes? It's it's fascinating. I wish I wish I knew. I wish I was a fly in the wall at, at Under Armour <laughs> yeah. to figure out yeah. because you're right. They you know did they really need to do this? And you know I think different companies handle it differently. Others you know others in that situation may have just taken the hit and said we don't have to continue this Im- impression that we're we're growing by twenty percent every year. We'll still survive and still do well. Others they'll make bad decisions or are deceptive in, in some way. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's really, it varies. It varies a lot how people respond to this pressure. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you would have been fine. And, 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 and the other, the sad thing sometimes is that you have these, these situations where, you know, the, the fraud, it adds up over time where you just yeah. kind of get into this trap where, you know, it, it, it sort of you, you it gets larger and larger because you're continuing it. And then, you know, things, you know, don't work out and you're you're left reporting like a really big loss. And, and you know, to some extent, you could say GE is a little bit like that. And and yep. if they had if they had like turned things around, no one would ever have known. And right. that, that's why it's, it's kind of so tricky is that I think sometimes the company will will say, you know, well, you know, we can kind of hide this and we think things will just turn around and no one's ever going to know this, right? No one's ever going to know the questionable right. things that we did. Um, and, and you're not going to find that. You're not, it's not going to be punished. Um, and so that's why when it is found, when it does result in bad consequences, I think that's why you need to bring the cases, levy the penalties, um, sometimes bring criminal cases to kind of uh, establish that this is it's it's not not okay I think that's that's and, right. and so it's you know it's it's tricky because um, it requires a lot of managerial uh, judgment and um, I think they are sometimes doing sort of a cost-benefit analysis I just want to quickly point out I just out of curiosity I looked up under armor stock price it's actually down about 65 percent over the last five years so I don't recall the exact timing of when the the enforcement action came so like there there are there are long-term repercussions even in a case like again under armor you see their products everywhere right but at the same time from a from a corporate value standpoint you know like the valuation standpoint there 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 is maybe uh they're clearly off their peak so there, there there definitely are consequences so anyway sorry 
Greg. And yeah. part of it is, well, do you I, trust I, the I, managers I, anymore? Right. If you right there, you if, go. If you, if you no longer trust the managers, you may you know that could be a problem. So what? A lot of what you were just talking about with GE, uh, I was a question I had about. Xerox because in the Xerox case you know and, and this is not they they were accelerating the rec, the recognition of revenue that's uh, I I want to say that in in probably my first financial accounting class ever they were like or audit classes like this is the biggest thing that anybody does is is re- revenue recognition are you are you timing it properly but you you pointed out something that that's that's very I think very basic to that whole uh, strategy for hitting your numbers is that if you say, well, we don't have enough revenue this quarter, but how about we take some from next quarter and we sort of push it into this corner, this quarter. And then it's like, oh, well then crap, next quarter comes. It's like, well, crap. Now we even have a higher number. We have to hit this quarter. And not only do we have to hit that, we also have to hit, like exceed it by so much to make up for whatever we pulled out of this quarter for last quarter. And then, so then you have to pull out more from the following quarter and and like you said, it's like it snowballs and it gets out of control. And but but one of the things that you said that I thought was so this is the heart of my question. You said if they had turned things around, nobody would have ever known. Do you think anybody's actually done that? I I <laughs> because if you're struggling to hit this quarter's numbers, but you go, man, next quarter. I swear next quarter we are going to not just – we're going to so destroy the numbers next year. It doesn't matter if we pull something to this quarter. We're totally good. Does that ever – do you think that – we'll never really know. But in your opinion, do you think that has ever actually worked? It's a, it's a great question. I mean, you are cannibalizing the future, and, and, and that's what Xerox <laughs> yeah. did, sadly. And, and, and it, is, it is something um, – that you kind of wonder what they're thinking is, and and if you're you know view if you're charitable to the managers, what you you would say is that they genuinely believe there's going to be a turnaround, that there's going to be an uptick, and that they are right to kind of you know manage right. expectations. Um, I, I bet though, I, I think I bet it happens though from time to time because you know it it, it has to because it just. You know, it's it's the way that entrepreneurship works is you never think it's going to this thing is going to work and be successful and just suddenly it takes off. Right. And I think that's the mentality of um, not only entrepreneurs, but sometimes corporate uh, managers that we're just going to get it done. And, right. and sometimes <laughs> uh, miraculously, it it somehow works. And, and that's that's kind of the tricky thing about securities fraud is that if you um you know, if you impose too much liability, you might deter folks from, you know, taking these risks and really, you know, as, as they say in Silicon Valley, fake it until we make it. Um, and that may be okay yep. for private companies. I think though for, for public companies, it's it's something that I think we've sort of said, we probably don't want that so much. I think that's what Sarbanes-Oxley is about, is that if you're a, a public company with widely held shares that... You know, it's it's probably not okay. It's not okay to fake it until you make it. You have to be pretty uh, forthright with investors. But I, I, I would be surprised. I'm sure that there are situations where you know there are lots of questionable activities, and and a lot of them we just never learn about because the company ends up doing okay. So here, I'm 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 going to tell you just my theory, and this <laughs> and this is nothing more than a hypothesis. But my guess 
is that you're right that there's been people's like, okay, we're going to cannibalize next quarter's earnings. We're going to put them in here because I'll tell you what, this thing that we've been in R&D, sure, we cut the R&D budget because we had to meet expectations, too, <laughs> but we got this thing in R&D. It's going to kill next quarter. And then, and then, like you said, all their hopes and prayers come true in the next quarter. It's like, this is the best quarter we've ever had. And, and this is my theory is they go, they go, Oh, thank God we pulled that off. We're <laughs> never going to do that again. And then eventually they get in the same predicament and they go, yeah. Oh, we, we did well. we did it the one time and it worked. So let's maybe yeah. it'll, you know, they're, they're like up against the wall. Let's do it again. And then, so I think So that's my guess is that there's times where it has happened effectively, but if there hasn't been turnover in terms of the management, the next time they hit the same problem, they'll go, this worked before, let's do it again. And again, it's just a sustainability problem where you can't, God's not going to answer prayers twice. Listen, I'm, that's how (laughs) jaded I am is that you get one answered prayer and then it's over. That's it. Yeah. That, that sounds right. Is that it can. It can be dangerous. It can be dangerous, right? Sometimes it it works, and then you you try to pull it out again, and um, yeah, you know, you get used to sort of uh, you know cheating death, and and uh, you know, <laughs> right. at some point it catches up. <laughs> yeah. it, it might catch up with you. It might catch up with you. That's that's certainly yeah. um, certainly something I think that is a, a nice way of describing what what must happen, and in, in in these in many companies. So, Jim, is there a case that didn't make the book that you think is just really good that um, that either people don't know about or it's just a classic and it got cut because it's like, oh, everybody's tired of hearing about this. Right. Well, or maybe a even good, a case I, that did make the book, but it didn't get its own chapter. But you're like, this case really needs its own spotlight. And I, I guess the, you know, the equity funding one is the, the crazy one that that comes to mind about. You yeah, know, they're literally making up. You know, they have this separate office in Beverly Hills where, um, you know, the job of these people was to literally fill out insurance forms that they, the policies they claim to have sold to people who didn't exist. And, you know, at, at one point, I think the auditors asked for, for 20 files and they're not able to produce them. And but somehow <laughs> they didn't follow up on it. And and um, and it, it just I, I it's a sort of a, near, a case that's near and dear to me because it's it happened in Century City, which is like 10 minutes from where I'm. I'm, I'm yep. sitting and um, that um, that gets discovered by a whistleblower. And that, that's kind of an interesting new dynamic, as you know, with the SEC. They um, mm-hmm. are giving awards to whistleblowers um, who can uh, discover this stuff and, and report it. And, you know, the the, uh, the the irony of this is that it led to this insider trading case, which is that the they, he, 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 he told the stockbroker, the stockbroker told all of his clients and also the Wall Street Journal and, and actually, equity funding was not pursued by the SEC, but the SEC brings an insider trading case against this uh, this research analyst, which um, mm. was kind of uh, odd, right? Um, but it led to this case called Dirks, which is a very famous insider trading case where the Supreme Court said that because the analyst didn't personally profit from um, the information, uh, that they couldn't be guilty of insider trading. And that debate that that decision's been debated for like the last thirty or forty years. Um, so that's a, a big iconic case. The, the other one I would have included was Miniscribe, which you guys have talked about, oh, like shipping oh, yes. the bricks. And, yeah. yep, yep. you know, that was that was one um, that didn't, you know, quite quite make the cut. Um, you know, there are the one there's a, a slew. There are dozens of these things in the late 90s, early 
uh, 2000s um, that yeah. you know, one could have could have talked about. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, examples that um, that that could have maybe maybe in another book or article I'll talk about. Yeah, the the it so the equity funding thing. The thing that um, you mentioned that made me chuckle was. Oh, the audits, the auditors requested like all these files from the clients and the clients just never gave it to them. Every auditor listening to this, right? I'm telling you, has that experience where they hand the right? list of stuff that they need from the client and the client just never shows up with it. So uh, that to, to the unfamiliar, that may sound suspicious, but I guarantee every auditor has that experience where like, yeah, they just never gave it to us. Wow. <laughs> like they never, and we never followed up. Um <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, equity funding. Uh, I, I'm I'm very interested in that story. So maybe we'll do a show on that someday, Greg. Okay, my my last question. Um, you mentioned at one point. Uh, I don't think you 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 name you, you said specifically who, but you you talked about a law professor who wrote an article uh, called "What Is Securities Fraud," and um, uh, anyone who reads uh, about f- uh, finance today reads Matt Levine at Bloomberg. And Matt has this yeah. recurring thing in his newsletter called everything is securities fraud. So I'm just curious, do you think we know what securities fraud is? So is the person that you're talking about, do we not know or is Matt right? And everything is. It's, it's really a great, a great question. And it's something that I think lawyers need to do a better job of kind of explaining sort of what they're doing what and the SEC maybe as as well um you know the what is securities fraud article was written by um you know Sam Buell who was a federal federal prosecutor a very prominent uh a criminal law uh scholar who um writes about various issues and he's talking about sort of the the vagueness of of these uh various uh fraud statutes and, and Levine's argument brings me to another um, subject, which is which is very very hot right now, which is that you know you're getting more of these cases that are coming out of corporate disasters. Something bad happens to the company, uh, reduces the stock price, and investors sue. And Matt Levine has sort of this running joke um, about about this, and that ties in actually quite a bit with the ESG movement, which you you I'm sure you're familiar with environmental, yep. social, and governance. Uh, concerns and encouraging companies to act responsibly. Um, the SEC is basically there now. Whenever there's a big corporate scandal, like they yep. they are there. They they filed uh, and settled cases. You know the Boeing seven thirty seven Max crash, right? Yep. Two hundred million dollar settlement. Uh, McDonald's has this uh, you know uh, scandal with its CEO. The SEC is there. Facebook had that Cambridge Analytica. Uh, issue and so um, and so there there really kind of questions about are we expanding the definition of securities fraud too much? Um, you know, my perspective is it just shows you how the idea of fraud evolves as the issues that are facing companies um, are changing. And you know, I think the reason why you're seeing more um, ESG fraud cases is that companies are being pressured by investors to say more about their compliance and social responsibility. The more you say, then the more there more chances there are to argue that you said something misleading. Right. Uh, because if, if, if it's true, investors care about these considerations in valuing companies, then if I'm misleading you about um, you know, these ESG issues in, in, in a way, and I'm intending to deceive you, then that that could be a, a securities fraud. So we're seeing the concept of securities fraud evolve. It's not static, 
um, and it changes over time. Right. So even if uh, from a legal standpoint, we don't know if everything is securities fraud, from a litigation strategy standpoint, everything is definitely securities fraud. <laughs> A lot of things, you know, and the courts have tried to, you know, develop barriers to some of the kind of more frivolous suits. And yeah. I think they're going to have to keep doing that because, you know, the, the main question to me in these, these I wrote a whole, an article on this called the ESG securities fraud. The main key question is, is this the type of risk that we would reasonably expect managers to have some reasonable sense of what the risk is? Or is it just something bad that just happened out of the blue? You have some scandal in your company. Nobody really could have anticipated it. Um, you know, is, is it that versus something where they have studied the issue and they know there's a high risk, but they tell everyone that it's a low risk, right? If they, if they, you know, if they kind of know through their risk analysis, then that to me is a greater case for there should be liability versus it just something that happens out of the blue that nobody could have anticipated. Um, and then right. that's it's going to be up to the courts and the SEC to figure out how to distinguish between those types of cases. Yeah, great. I stuff. like I like what you're saying <laughs> that with ESG, the the companies are just saying too much. Where it's like, how's your environmental, social, and government? There, it's good. No further questions, and then they'd be <laughs> then they'd be fine. I think. I mean, that's my takeaway. So. Uh, yeah. Okay, it's my, it's my last question. Yeah, final question, Greg. My last question goes, we, we, we spoke about Under Armour earlier, and uh, Under Armour, not, not my favorite company. Um, I, I was wondering, uh, Jim, if, you, if, if, if you're interested at all in this potential case against Under Armour, um, because I've found personally that Under Armour is not actually armor at all. I had... I wore, I was wearing some and, and I, my, my, my family and I, we have bow and arrows and, and I had my son shoot an arrow at me and it, it lodged into my thigh where I had under armor compression shorts on and it went through and it, it caused me significant personal injury, uh, to my thigh <laughs> and the infection that resulted from this dirty arrow that got shot in there and nowhere on the packaging did it have any kind of disclaimer that Under Armour, despite the name, is not actually armor? So I'm not interested in a retainer kind of situation with you, Jim, but will you take this case on more of a commission basis that if we win, you'll take parts, which we will, that you'll take part of the, the settlement for that case? That, that sounds like an ESG issue, Greg. Um, that's a, that's a <laughs> so, consumer so a safety case. issue I have that they misrepresented. So we'll have to look at their their disclosures and uh, their you know do they you know do they have a risk factor in their 10K um, that that covers this? I, I I'd like to see that. I'd really like to see that, and we would get some uh, discovery and see if there's some internal emails that um, indicate they know about this about this risk. So we. You know, you know, a contingency basis might might work work fine fine for something like that. I'll take it. We'll talk. We'll talk more off the mics. But thank you. I'm I'm, I'm excited <laughs> about that. I think that's. I'm excited to pursue this with you. Okay, that that was great. That was really great. S such a great conversation with Jim. Yeah, super fun. Um, I had more fun than I, I I expected it to be good, but then I even had a better time. I, it exceeded my expectations. That's what I'm trying to yeah. say. Yep. He was um, a fantastic guest. He was. 
if you want to check out Jim's book uh, or or get in touch with him, uh, there's links uh, in the show notes that you can follow where to get the book or where uh, to contact him uh, through his uh, profile on UCLA's website. And that's it for this episode. So remember, debate team is a great launch pad for people who want to become lawyers, and the football team is a great launch pad for people who want to peak in high school. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed that. that nice, good, nice good. Did you not read that ahead of time? Nope. <laughs> nope, I hate that. <laughs> and also remember, an SEC internship isn't as sexy as it sounds. It's way sexier than it sounds. If you want to drop us a line, like we said at the top of the show, uh, send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, where can people get a hold of you if they want to find you? I'm on Twitter or X. Is it? It's X. It's X and Twitter. I I, I feel like X still refers to itself as Twitter. So (laughs) does it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When it speaks. When it speaks in third person, yeah, it's like yep. Twitter, Twitter is very upset with Elon Musk right yeah, now. Exactly. Uh, at C Newquist for the Xers, Xers, yeah, and uh, backslash Caleb Newquist on LinkedIn. Greg, uh, you've given up, right? No more internet for you, uh, except I'm for not, except for recording a podcast. Uh, recording a podcast I, and and LinkedIn. Really, if 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 through the social medias, LinkedIn is probably the best way to get a hold of me. But don't like hold your breath for me to get back to you i will eventually i still look at it i still look through all the stuff but it takes me a little while but yeah uh linkedin uh greg kite cpa that's me on linkedin so check me out there oh my fraud is written by greg kite and myself our producer is zach frank if you like the show rate it write a review share it with a friend it's the right thing to do it's a nice thing to do <laughs> and subscribe on apple spotify wherever you listen iHeartRadio. podcast addict is another one Apparently, There's earmark some... CPE is another one. Earmark is an another one, and you can get CPE if you listen on earmark. Yep. And I don't know when the show is going to be released, but chances are, right now, if you're listening, you might need some CPE. You do need some CPE. All right. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, "Oh my, oh fraud. my fraud." <laughs> <laughs>